again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Puro of the Legal Consulting Group. Hi, everyone, and I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. The Bar on Healthcare is available on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare, subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave us a review. And J.D., the bar is open. We sure are. Pull up a stool. We're glad you're with us. We'd like to thank all of you who downloaded our two-part series on the November election. And Kerry, our prediction was right. It was not, in fact, settled on November 3rd. It was a couple of days past that when we learned that come January 20th, President Biden will be facing a, well, at the very least, a smaller Democratic majority in the House and possibly, depending on what happens with our friends in Georgia, possibly a 50-50 Senate, could be 51-49 Republican, could be 52-48. But for our purposes today, uh, we will be going yet again to our third branch of government, the Supreme Court, because, Kerry, it finally happened. We finally had the oral argument that we've been looking forward to for you know, it just seems like a couple of years now. We've been looking forward to it. I'm not sure everyone else was, but uh, yes, as we've been discussing for two years now, the Supreme Court finally held its oral arguments on the Affordable Care Act case. That case is California v. Texas, and oral arguments went on for almost two hours just a week ago. Yeah, I, I know when we when we talked uh, yesterday, you you actually were in the car, you were listening to, to the podcast. Thanks to my having refused to cut my cable, I was able to listen to the entire argument via our friends at, at Court TV, because because here at the bar, I'm, I'm still stuck in the year 2000. The arguments were held remotely. They had a couple of glitches during the broadcast. It was actually good to see that even Supreme Court justices have some, some technical problems. I think Justice Breyer lost the connection at one point. But, you know, Kerry, one thing that really impresses me about these oral arguments, and, and now they are entirely oral and conducted over the phone, is a couple of things that really differ from, from the days in, in Georgetown when, when we had the, the mock trial. First of all, how the advocates are able to make their opening and closing arguments almost without the usual interruptions from the justices. You get a clean three or four sentences. They actually get into, they, they make, they, they encapsulate their argument before they, they even talk. Second, even Justice Thomas, who almost never asked a question during these sessions, you know, even he's engaged uh, by all this. Yes, I was surprised by that too. I was also surprised by the fact that the justices seem to be self-monitoring their own time. I, I think it was Justice Breyer who looked up at one point and interrupted himself and said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of time and moved on to the next justice. So that's been interesting to see as well. But in terms of glitches, I'm glad they didn't have the glitch that they had in the first oral argument that they did in this fashion, which was a toilet flushing. So they seem to have addressed those issues. Even the justices are human, but but hey, you know they're actually keeping within their time limits. Uh, there are actually no interruptions. Uh, apparently, we moved on from the uh, from the presidential debates, so that's that's a good thing. But in keeping with the tradition here at the bar, we're going to actually move into you know what they were discussing uh, during the oral arguments. And Kerry, can you outline for our listeners, you know, exactly how did the oral arguments flow? What what were what were the <laughs> was that was that a toilet pun? How they flowed. That that might uh, we're not int- not intentionally. <laughs> Sorry, I have an 11-year-old son. (laughs) So just to give some quick background, as listeners of the bar will know, um, so this case is really based on whether when Congress zeroed out the penalty for the individual mandate back in 2017, whether that rendered that provision itself unconstitutional, and then whether, because that provision is unconstitutional, whether the whole ACA is unconstitutional.
unconstitutional. And that's because back in 2012, when the Supreme Court decided that the ACA was constitutional, that was based on a theory that the individual mandate was a tax. And now that that's no longer in effect, is the provision and therefore the act still constitutional. So in terms of the parties who were arguing before the court, on behalf of the plaintiffs, you had Solicitor General Kyle Hawkins from the state of Texas, and you had Acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall on behalf of the U.S. Department of Justice. And then the respondents were the Solicitor General of California, Michael Mongan, and the former Solicitor General Donald Varelli, who was arguing on behalf of the U.S. House of Representatives. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Don Varelli was the Solicitor General who argued the ACA case on behalf of the Obama administration back in 2012. And and I think we all remember, you know, that oral argument back in 2012 when it was over and and Varelli walked out of the Supreme Court building. Everybody thought that he had lost. There wasn't one commentator who who didn't say, you know, this was a, a train wreck for the administration. There's no doubt the Affordable Care Act's going down. So again, word to the wise here, you can never tell how the justices are going to rule just going from the oral arguments. Uh, just Solicitor General Verrilli, you know, had a bad day, but in the end, you know, the old the old saying, bad day equals equals good judgment. But Kerry, you had, you had mentioned the standing issue, uh, which they took up a lot more time uh, on standing than, than I even recalled uh, they've been having taken up during the original NFIB argument. You're right. So the argument really focused on three issues, whether the parties had standing, and that was a pretty robust discussion, particularly because that wasn't something that had come up a lot in the lower court decisions. So so there was a lot of time spent on standing. But in addition to that issue, there was also discussion around whether the individual mandate was unconstitutional or not. And then, of course, whether the mandate could be severed. So should we talk a little bit about the standing issue? Yeah. And I think the chief Chief Justice really summarized the issue pretty well when in his exchange with uh, Solicitor General Walls. Um, and he said, you know, General, your theory of standing is that a person who's not actually injured by part of the law can challenge that part of the law and through that try to strike down other parts of the law that do challenge him or that do injure him. And the Chief Justice goes on to say, you're talking about almost a thousand pages and you're letting somebody not injured by the provision that needs challenging sort of roam around through those thousand pages and pick out whichever ones he wants to attack. And, and that, that's, a, I think, a pretty good analysis of the what they're calling now standing by severability. I think that's that's the way they refer to it. Yeah. So this was the plaintiff state's assertion that they had standing to bring this claim because of standing through inseverability. That was their theory. So the idea under this theory is that the plaintiffs can point to a harm that they face, not necessarily from the provision that they're challenging, but from another provision of the act. And then the argument goes that because those provisions are inseverable, then the injury caused by the other provisions is still relevant to the plaintiff's standing. So in this case, the plaintiffs say that even though they're not harmed by the individual mandate itself, but because they're harmed from other provisions of the ACA, like the Medicaid provisions and the reporting requirements, because those provisions of the ACA are inseverable from the mandate, then the injury caused by those provisions still gives them standing to challenge 
challenge the mandate. So it's a pretty novel theory. It's never been adopted by the court before. So this would really be setting a precedent if the court were to rule that there, the states, the plaintiff states had uh, standing through this inseverability theory. And Justice Alito really did probe Mr. Verrilli on this because he, you know, he he's, he basically posited this to him. You know, suppose there's a simple statute, and this is on the theory of, of standing by inseverability. Suppose there's a simple statute. It has two provisions. A and B. I'm hurt by B. I'm not hurt by A. A is unconstitutional. The statute has a clause that says if A falls, B falls too. And then he says, under those circumstances, would I lack standing to challenge A? And Verily responds, he says, that hypothetical definitely tests the limit of our objection to standing through inseverability. And I think it would be hard to maintain that position in the face of a statute like that. Yes. So that was an interesting exchange. And then Verily went on to say, but look, at the end of the day, the theory, the the presumption is of several ability. So if you are going to adopt this novel theory of inseverability, and and that's how you get to standing, it really doesn't make a lot of sense from the perspective of severability is generally the presumption. And that's what the court's holdings have said in the past. Yeah. And and you had mentioned before when when we were discussing this in pregame, you you had said that the states would would really like to be able to expand the definition of standing because there are a lot of statutes that they'd like to challenge, that they'd like to come to court on. Yeah. I thought that was sort of a, a quippy statement by the California Attorney General. He said, look, you know, if we lose the argument on standing, that's fine. We're happy to go to the merits right away. But he also pointed out that he'd also be very happy for the court to set a, a precedent for a lower bar for state standing going forward. I mean, as everybody knows, California is very, you know, they, they bring a lot of cases before the Supreme Court over federal legislation. So I thought that was kind of a, an interesting exchange as well. But on the question of, of constitutionality, they did, they did ultimately, ultimately, get to that. And how do you see the shaking out? Where where does the whole constitutionality issue take us on this? Which, of course, has been, you know, something we've been discussing for, for years, even, even back in the NFIB v. Sebelius days. Right. So the questions were generally divided into determining whether the mandate could continue to be read as a choice between purchasing health insurance or not, or whether it was a legal command to purchase health insurance under NFIB, or whether it was just a provision that was precatory or inoperative. So, you know, that was really the discussion that the justices addressed to both the plaintiffs and the respondents. Yeah, and, and the whole idea of the, the choice really goes down to the issue of the controversial, I say controversial because everyone has talked about it for years, uh, the saving construction of the statute that, that Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts wrote about in order to convert this into a tax rather than a mandate. That provision, Article 3C, there seemed to be some debate as to whether anyone other than Justice Roberts actually signed off on that. I mean, I had always read that 3C provision saying that this could more naturally be read as a command, but in order to save it, it can be read as a tax rather than a mandate. It was never clear to me whether the other four justices, in in addition to Chief Justice Roberts, really signed off on the idea that the mandate itself was an unconstitutional command. Carrie, Carrie, what what are your views on that? Yes, I think you're right. I don't think that was entirely clear because I don't know that you necessarily had a majority of justices who agreed that it was not constitutional because of Commerce Clause issues. So I think, you know, if we're getting down to the negotiations for getting the NFIB decision, I'm sure there were some deals about how that opinion was going to be written and how it was going to be characterized in order to get to the result we got to, which was constitutional constitutionality, I guess. But Justice Kagan also questioned Texas on this point and and asked why 
Congress's decision to make the mandate less coercive by setting the penalty at zero now makes it an unconstitutional command when it wasn't before. And, and I think the way she put it was, how does it make sense to say that what, what was not an unconstitutional command before has become an unconstitutional command now, given the far lesser degree of coercive force? Because of course, there is no penalty for not purchasing insurance. So, you know, I think that was an interesting discussion as well. And I'm not sure that Texas had the best response to that. Yeah, it's the, the whole question of, of the mandate and, you know, whether it's whether it's key to the whole act. I'm actually just going, I know we're, we're talking about the constitutionality and that segues into the severability issue, but my favorite part of the oral argument discussion, because we had we had gone back and forth on this issue and using this metaphor so many times. I just want to go back to Chief Justice's questioning of Attorney Verrilli. He said to him, eight years ago, those defending the mandate emphasized it was the key to the whole act. Everything turned on getting money from people forced to buy insurance to cover all the other shortfalls in the expansion of healthcare. And the briefs here on the other side go over all that. But now the representation is that, oh no, everything's fine without it. Why the bait and switch? Was Congress wrong when it said that the mandate was the key to the whole thing that we spent spent all that time talking about broccoli for nothing? And that just, that, that, that exchange just has to be a classic. You know, he says, you know, why the bait and switch? You know, what, what about the broccoli? I mean. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny too. I suspect Chief Justice Roberts wanted to get broccoli in there somewhere. And, and for our listeners, we just want to make it clear, the Justice Scalia, I believe it was, who brought this up, said, if the government can force you to buy health insurance, can they force you to buy broccoli? And there were all the metaphors about whether broccoli, you know, you can sever the broccoli from the stalk and have the rest of the stalk standing. But, uh, you know, there, there's certainly, I mean, back in, I think it's clear, Carrie, back in 2010 through 2012, there was a whole lot in the legislative history there and, and even in, in the, the course of the statute to suggest that the mandate was, in fact, key, that, that they needed that tax money uh, or penalty money, whichever way you're going to refer to it, in order to pay for parts of, of the healthcare that it was, it was, at least back then, it was an integrated whole. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think it was not only as a, as a revenue generator, but it was also because you couldn't have people be able to get coverage in the middle of the year and wait until they got sick. And so you needed some sort of incentive for people to carry coverage year round. And that's why it was integrated with the other provisions of the ACA, like the prohibition on pre-existing condition restrictions and guarantee issue and guaranteed renewability. I think that was part of the three-leg stool that we used to talk about. So, you know, and I think Varelli, to Chief Justice Roberts' point, said the only answer that is actually true and, and that he could, which is, look, that's what Congress thought at the time they passed the act back in 2012. But it turns out since the mandate was repealed or was zeroed out in 2017, there really hasn't been this detriment to the markets that we thought that there would be. So it turns out Congress may have been wrong in 2012, but now in 2017, they knew exactly what they were doing. Their intent was just to zero out the the penalty, but not to repeal the rest of the act. Yeah, and I think I'm I'm not sure so much that they were wrong at just and and I think it was is Justice Alito who went through this. He he says, you know, at the time of the first case, there was strong reason to believe that the individual mandate was like a part in an airplane that was essential to keep the plane flying. So that if that part was taken out the plane would crash. But now the part has been taken out and the plane has not crashed. So how would we explain why the individual mandate in its present form is essential to the operation of the act? And I know we're mixing the constitutionality and severability issues. And I'll get back to the constitutionality question in a moment. But that certainly seems to me 
to be, uh, particularly when Justice Kavanaugh, you know, said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing here. But he said, I'm, he said, I'm kind of with you on on the severability issue. It just seems to me that that severability seems to be, you know, where most of of the court appears to be leaning at this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I, I, sorry, I want to jump back to the constitutionality issue just for a minute. So, you know, back on that point, I thought it was interesting. There was a, a lot of talk about whether the provision was now precatory or it was a command, but there wasn't a lot of discussion on whether the provision was still a tax or not. Although California and the House of Representatives said that one potential reason why Congress might have zeroed out the, the penalty was that they retained the provision to potentially reinstate the tax in the future. So that was one thing I hadn't really thought about or heard ar- be argued before. So I thought that was an interesting response. Yeah, yeah, and you use the you use the adjective precatory to describe describe. There were there were other two other adjectives, you know, phrases used. One was hortatory, you know, just it's is like na- we're nagging you, you know, eat your vegetables and, and things like that. But the other one which is used at least three times was was moral suasion. You know, now that's that's what the this this command is. And and it, it's interesting because the the discussion centered on, you know, the use of of two terms that, you know, should be interpreted to mean something, uh, the use of the term shall and the use of the term should. I mean, it, the mandate does still say you shall buy health insurance. So it's still you know, the most natural read, as, as in the words of Chief Justice, uh, would be as a command. Does the fact that there's no longer that penalty slash tax associated with that command, does that now change it into something less than a command? So does it change it into, more, into, into a should? I'm not sure everybody took that same view during the oral, oral arguments. Yeah, and I think that just goes back to Justice Kagan's point that h- how can it be more coercive now when the penalty zero than it was when there was an actual penalty amount? So I get the shall versus should distinction, but I, you know, I think it doesn't really hold when you think about it was fine before when we actually charged you something, but now it's a problem that we're not actually enforcing it against you. Well, yeah, and and the whole question of doing this without enforcement, there were a lot of hypotheticals put into that discussion about, well, you know, what about, I think the Chief Justice said, suppose we pass a law, the Congress passes a law saying you have to mow your lawn every Sunday. There's no enforcement provision and there's no penalty, but the, you know, the opprobrium of your neighbors and having a, a an untidy lawn might be enough to get at least some people to to decide to do that. Or flying a flag off your porch every uh, every day. You know, I think it was Justice Kavanaugh who said, you know, that, that the CBO report from 2008 and 2012 uh, suggested that there will be some people who will buy you know, we'll buy health insurance simply because it's a command and they want to be, they, they don't want to be, you know, considered to have violated the law. And it was even the chief justice who said, look, you know, suppose that there's a, a form that's filled out. Let's say this command just stays on the books. This mandate just stays on the books. Suppose you fill out, have to fill out a form asking, have you ever violated the law and you haven't bought health insurance? How do you answer the, uh, how do you answer the form? So how do, you, how do you answer that question? I think there are instances where the, the whole question of whether someone is going to obey this simply because it's the law, there was the argument made that that's enough to establish injury, maybe not for the states, but at least for individuals. Well, and the California Solicitor General's response to that was, you know, if there was uh, a situation where somebody had to check a box on a job application about whether they had health insurance or whether that violated the law, then perhaps that might be problematic, but that's not what was alleged. So there were no facts like that that were alleged. And I think that went to the standing argument as well, because there was no actual injury to provide standing for either the individual plaintiffs or the states. Yeah. And as I recall, the, the standing 
standing issue has always been a question under this case, because back in, in 2012, I mean, refresh my recollection here, Kerry, didn't they have trouble even finding a half dozen plaintiffs who could allege that they were injured because of the mandate to buy the health insurance wasn't wasn't standing, at least an issue, maybe not the central issue, but at least an issue a few years back? Yeah, I, I don't recall whether that was the issue in 2012, but I think that was the issue when, when they the states wanted to bring this case, because th- there was an issue about whether there was actual harm, and you have to show injury from each provision as required under the prior precedent. So I think there was some difficulty finding individual plaintiffs who might have been harmed by this, given that there was no longer any penalty. I think what the states argued, or what Texas argued on behalf of the individual plaintiffs was they were harmed because they can't buy the type of insurance that they want to buy anymore. They have to buy the type of insurance that complies with all of the provisions of the ACA. And then I think that goes back to the whole, you know, standing by inseverability theory. Well, the at some point, we're going to need a decision on this, and, and that should come in June. But we have some indication before that of how people might rule. And that was a mock trial uh, conducted, I think, maybe a couple of years ago. And one of the judges on that mock trial was, was the newest Supreme Court justice, Amy Coney Barrett. And although we don't know how she voted on that, we do know that of, of the eight judges there, five found that there was no standing. And three found that there was standing and that the mandate was unconstitutional, but that it could be severed from the act. So that's, you know, the odds were that Justice Barrett, now Justice Barrett, voted for at least one of those results. I mean, Kerry, where, where do we end up on this? Do we, do we think they throw it out because of standing, which would just start the whole bowl rolling again, or, or do they actually reach the merits? Yeah, I mean, I don't know where they come out on the standing issue. I could see it going either way. But the fact of the matter is, if they decided on standing, then that means that the plaintiffs will just go back amend their complaints and bring the case all over again with standing. So I suspect that the justices, particularly Chief Justice Roberts, would like to have this settled on the merits. So they could find it's th- that there's no standing and therefore it ends, at least for now. They could find that the provision is constitutional and therefore we just continue status quo. They could find that the provision is unconstitutional, but it's severable. And, you know, there is a strong presumption of severability, and both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh um, seem skeptical of the severability, the plaintiff's severability argument. And there's a long-standing presumption that statutes are severable. So I, I think, you know, there's a at least a good likelihood that that we could see that as a result, or they could find that it's the provision is unconstitutional, but it's not severable, and therefore the whole Affordable Care Act must fall. And if that's the case, the plaintiffs had asked that the court then extend the stay that was granted at the district court level in order to give Congress and the states time to address any potential impacts. So if the plaintiffs win, they don't want any decision to be implemented right away. They want you know time for um, the defects to be addressed, but I guess that would be the whole law. And we know how long it took for the ACA to pass. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, oh, yeah. This, and with a divided government, I I'm, I'm sure, I mean, assuming there's a divided government, even with a 50-50 Senate, I mean, trying to rebuild the Affordable Care Act if everything falls apart in June would be quite the feat. But before our clients, you know, run out and start worrying about this, you know, I'm still going with my prediction. I think it's a seven to two decision. There is standing. The mandate is now unconstitutional, but it's severed from the rest of the act. I think at most you'll have Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, you know, uh, viewing in this in the dissent there. I think everybody else goes uh, Roberts, Kavanaugh, 
Barrett and Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, I think they all end up going into, into the majority on that. So I think it ends up seven to, if I'm counting correctly, I think it ends up seven to two, that they basically get rid of the mandate and keep everything else status quo so we can continue to have our fun with the Affordable Care Act and, and all those forms, which injure no one but the people that have to fill them out, have to spend all that time. And for what it's worth, I agree with you on the result, but I don't think it's going to be seven to two. Oh, okay. Well, we'll we'll see what happens. I would bet you on this, but you know, I've been betting on the Jets for the last nine weeks and certainly haven't made any money there, so I'm not even going to try. Well, well, the last time I bet you, I had to end up paying $100. <laughs> so. okay. Okay. There you go. Okay. So anyway, last call here, and, and Carrie and I both agree on this last call. This week starts the ninth month that we have been in work from home mode since the onset of the COVID pandemic. And it's also the start of the holiday season. So it sure seems as if a little good news is in order. And this week, we appear to have gotten some, and and it's long overdue. Uh, The pharmaceutical company Moderna announced yesterday that the company's experimental coronavirus vaccine was almost 95% effective in preventing COVID-19 based on interim data from a late stage clinical trial. And this has big consequences for shipping and distribution. The vaccine can be stored in regular refrigerators refrigerator temperatures. So between Pfizer and Moderna, the U.S. could have as many as 60 million doses of the vaccine ready by the end of the year. That doesn't take into account all the other pharmaceutical companies that are working very hard to get a vaccine. The scientific leader of Operation Warp Speed said that Americans could be getting vaccinated as soon as next month. So Kerry, that's a gift we can all ask for. Absolutely. That's our report for today. We'd like to thank our producer, Kelly Lemke, for all of us today on wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm J.D. Pirro. And I'm Carrie Willis. Thanking you for your time this time. And until next time, the bar is closed.